It's fair to say that the American Revolution did not turn out the way that King George III had hoped. Lampooned in popular culture today, just check out the musical Hamilton or the movie The Madness of King George to see what I mean, and despised by the American revolutionaries and leaders of the early republic, there's no denying that George was unsuccessful in holding his empire together. But when the fighting started in 1775, this outcome was not what the world expected. Indeed, there was a critical window between Lexington and Concord on the one hand, and the entry of the French and Spanish into the war a few years later, when the British had the upper hand. How did they squander it? What role did George play in the failure of his generals and ministers? Was he really a madman and a tyrant? My guest, the biographer and historian Andrew Roberts, doesn't think so. In the spirit of transatlantic unity, we'll hear him out. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. I'm Aaron McLean, the host of School of War. On this podcast, we talk about strategy and military history, diplomatic history, and ask ourselves, what can we learn from the words and deeds of significant battlefield commanders and statesmen and others that's relevant to policymakers and engaged citizens today? Have we forgotten things that are important? Is our forgetfulness putting us at risk? To help us with this today, I am delighted to welcome Andrew Roberts. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Andrew, for those in the audience who don't know, which won't be that many of you, is a phenomenally talented and prolific writer, the author most recently of a new biography of George III, which we'll get to in just a moment, but of many books before that as well, focusing on questions of military history. The first book I read of yours was actually a a magnificent first one-volume history of the Second World War, The Storm of War, which came out, gosh, about 10 years ago. And if you can really only read one, one volume about the war, I think I would recommend that one. You've written a marvelous biography of Churchill, recently a biography of Napoleon, which I have not read, but I intend to. And and now we're on to George III. It's in some ways to an American audience, and, and I may give you a hard time about this, a, a bit of a shocking book. You are you are a, a relentless advocate for the reputation of, of King George, and, and we can talk about that. But before we get to the to the subject at hand, you know, I like to ask guests on the show to tell us a bit about themselves, you, you know, how you grew up, where you're from, how did you become a, a writer, a scholar, a military historian and biographer? Give, give us some sense of how you got into this whole business. Thank you very much indeed, Aaron, for that um, very generous and, uh, if anything, rather over the top um, commendation of my works. I appreciate every word of it. I'm not going to believe necessarily every word of it. It's uh, a great honour to be on the show. So, um, so thanks again. How did I become a history, military historian? Really uh, I, I read history at uh, Cambridge University, and I had some very good um, teachers there. Norman Stone, Professor Norman Stone, um, who's written lots of great books on strategy, uh, was one of them. And then I left uh, Cambridge and went into the city of London and discovered fairly soon that I was um, innumerate, really, to all intents and purposes, <laughs> functionally, functionally innumerate, anyhow. And so I chucked it and, and started to write uh, history books. It was the best decision I ever made. I, I really am so pleased. I've never spent a minute um, regretting having taken that, um, that decision. 
marvelous. And and so why why George the Third? How did you come to this project? Well, I've written books about um, uh, Napoleon and uh, Napoleon and Wellington and the Battle of Waterloo. So I've long been interested in the King of England at the uh, time of the Napoleonic Wars. But really, as all you Americans will know, his, his uh, true claim to fame is that his uh, so-called obstinacy lost the colonies and that he ruled as well as reigned and he had an authoritarian side that's lampooned so brilliantly in Hamilton the Musical and that he went mad with porphyria, none of which I believe. I think mm-hmm. that, uh, that that's all uh, rot. And I think that the papers, the Her Majesty the Queen has allowed 200, since 2015 over 100,000 pages of uh, George III's papers to become available. And these show quite what an enlightened figure he was, what a cultured man he was, and how he had absolutely no plans to try and tyrannise your country whatsoever. So so yes, he's a a very interesting and, in my view, completely misunderstood uh, and underestimated person. Yeah, the book is called The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III. You know, and I have to say, reading through it, the the relentlessness of your advocacy for George reminded me a bit of Churchill in Marlboro and his relentless advocacy for his much maligned ancestor, John yes, Churchill. You can, you can equate me to Winston Churchill as much as you might care. <laughs> it was Thank a complicated you. compliment if you think about it, but uh, uh, there, there you go. So let's set the stage a bit to get into the subject matter of the book and, and talk about the American Revolution generally, but what I'm really interested in is, of course, George's role in it. And before we get to him personally, talk to us a bit about, if you like, the, the, the British Constitution and, and the way in which this country, Great Britain, waged war at the end of the 18th century. King George, obviously, you know, at, at the top of the structure, but not, not in charge in a direct or absolute way. You have a parliament, you have a cabinet, Looking back on the whole thing from a 21st century perspective, it all seems a bit jumbled and complicated. Kind of, kind of help us understand how the British nation wages war. Yes, well, it it, it waged war quite successfully in um, 1756 to 63 in the Seven Years' War, which obviously started in America, but um, a good, good deal of it was uh, fought all around the world. And then suddenly, um, a few years later, 12 years later, it wages war incredibly badly and stupidly and ultimately, of course, unsuccessfully. Partly this is due to the fact that in the Seven Years' War, what you call the French and Indian War, um, we had William Pitt the Elder as the um, driving force. And in the the, uh, American War of Independence, there was nobody like that. Lord North didn't consider himself to be a war minister. Um, Lord George Sackville, known at that stage as Lord George uh, German, was um, hated by at least half the cabinet. And certainly he didn't get on with the first Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Sandwich. Uh, we took our, our leaders from an incredibly small social um, circle. They were, they were pretty much all at school or university with one another, that school being Eton. And um, it was really a, a series of extremely difficult uh, logistical problems, needless to say, trying to um, to uh, arm and clothe and feed and reinforce an army 3,000 plus miles away, on top of your extremely successful and, and, and brilliant and, and, you know, wonderful generals. Your, the leadership of, of George Washington was um, something that was sublime. And frankly, we had absolutely nothing in 
terms of our generals that could uh, that could equate to it. So, so I think that um, although the uh, American Revolution took on what was the largest empire in the world, of course, nonetheless that does uh, slightly um, hide the fact that that uh, empire had enormous logistical and other problems. And also, as you were hinting, I think, organisational problems in the way that the ministries all seem to fall out with one another. And the army itself was far too small to try to vanquish a, a continent, essentially. Well, you, you know, you talk about the largest empire in the world and, and obviously, uh, you know, as, as seemed to be the general attitude in London in 1775, 1776, comparing just on paper the prospects of the rebellious colonists with the prospects of Britain militarily, it, it looks pretty grim for the colonists. But, uh, you know, then you start realizing some things that I think in retrospect are quite surprising. Uh, the British have 48,000 men under arms in 1775, you're right, total. And that's clearly nothing like enough, not least because the great empire is actually overstretched already. It's, it's, it tends to get bigger after the um, American uh, War of Independence, needless to say. But that's because they've grown up... Um, enough during the war, learn the lessons of the war and appreciate they have to put a much higher degree of GDP into, um, into the army and navy than they did before. Uh, you have also, of course, at the key moment after the um, disaster at Saratoga, the, the French get involved and then the year after that, the Spanish and the year after that, the Dutch. So, so Britain is therefore having to fight on um, a truly global war. And essentially what they do is to put the um, American War of Independence on hold until they can deal with the, uh, with the existential crisis, which crops up in 1779, where we are very seriously concerned about a, um, an invasion of the British mainland by, uh, by France. So, um, so partly due to America's, um, the, the colonists' great success, in um, in the early stages, in, in not being defeated at Bunker Hill, Washington being able to escape from uh, Manhattan, in uh, Saratoga, of course, you know you have you change the entire global um, balance of power effectively against the British. Right, and you have a, a this modestly sized army in 1775. The Brits have a, a navy that's actually set to shrink. It's on a it's on a glide path to get smaller. That obviously changes as well. And there's talk to us a bit about there's there's a there's a tension and a, an ongoing debate as pertains to the revolution. But this is a longstanding kind of debate in British strategic thinking goes back at least a century or more. The distinction between a, a kind of a land strategy and a sea strategy often expressed in terms of a continental strategy. Well, it's been going on, as you say, for a long time, because the um, the king, George III, is also elector of Hanover and has these, uh, these lands in Germany that need to be defended, be defended against France, essentially. And uh, you either have to become friendly with the Russians, Austrians, or, or the Prussians. And um, we choose the Prussians, even though it's, they're the weakest power, um, or seem to be at the uh, start of the um, Seven Years' War. But then Frederick the Great turns out to be one of the great captains of, of history and obviously um, manages to deal with most of the problems that he has on the Austrian and Russian frontiers. And this creates the kind of sense during the Seven Years' War that Britain could become a, or could be, 
in alliance with others, of course, a, a coalition partner that could have a presence on the continent. Um, and this is completely opposed. This is a sort of Whig view that um, that uh, is taken very much by King George II, who was the last king of England to command troops in, in battle uh, in 1743. Uh, but his grandson, George III, is very much of the opposed blue water concept, whereby Hanover doesn't matter that much, that the amount of money spent on the army is wasted, um, that what we really need is a strong Royal Navy that's going to be able to extend British uh, power, especially in, in Asia and, uh, and India and so on, um, but also will be able to beat the, um, the French fleet if it ever came to a, uh, another war. And these two uh, hate each other. There's, there are moments when um, they clash and uh, George the Second at one point wants Lord George Germain to be um, found guilty of cowardice at the Battle of Minden and executed. We always hear of, of two different competing schools of strategic thought in, in pretty much every great power you know, throughout his history. But at this point in British history, they uh, are so uh, daggers drawn that they actually want to execute each other. Talk through, there is a party politics or at least, you know, proto-party politics quality to this debate. You talk about how the Whigs favor the more continental or land-oriented approach, and, and the Tories, thus, we should understand the other direction. Why, why is that? Why, why does this become a party political issue? Well, the, the Whigs have been in power for 80 years. They, they've been in power since the uh, Glorious Revolution in 1688. And so they very much, uh, they're, they're a group of uh, oligarchs. They are married to each other and cousins to each other. They are the most uh, tiny group of incredibly uh, powerful, and it must be said, altruistic in their own way, aristocrats in, uh, in British history. And they hate the idea that any um, newcomers, especially the squirearchy Tories, who they socially despise, might have a different view about the way that um, grand strategy should be applied. And um, so there's a sort of, as ever in British politics, there's a class element uh, to this, as well as a uh, political and ideological one. And you have a situation where George II's son, uh, Frederick Prince of Wales, George III's uh, father, um, takes a diametrically opposed view of strategy than his, his father, the king. And so you have two competing courts, and one of them is what's called the reversionary interest, because, of course, ultimately we all know, or at least we think we know, that the Prince of Wales is going to become king one day, and therefore all of the power is going to go to the people around him. What nobody did know was that in 1751 he was going to die suddenly and leave no reversionary interest apart from the very young 13-year-old uh, Prince um, uh, George, later George III. And so let's let's talk about a land-oriented strategy and a naval-oriented strategy as far as America is concerned. So the shooting starts in 1775. Things escalate quickly. Obviously, we have the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And then there's this, this window. You, you made reference to this earlier. There's a sort of strategic window from the beginning of hostilities through to the entry of the French uh, into the war in 1778. And this is the, the greatest period of opportunity for the British. It obviously doesn't go well. Well, the, the first uh, strategy is uh, obviously to try and destroy the Continental Army there and then at, uh, at Bunker Hill and uh, 
and prove that irregulars can't stand up against regulars, which at the Battle of Bunker Hill is proved to be uh, uh, completely wrong. Then you have a split in the British um, uh, high command, essentially, where the um, the Blue Water people believe that the American colonies can be strangled by destroying their trade, um, overseas trade. And, and they are, especially once um, Washington escapes from, uh, from New York, from, from General Howe's attack on, uh, on Manhattan, um, they seem to be in the ascendant, upon which uh, Lord George German uh, comes up with the um, plan uh, which is really the only actual proper strategic plan that the British put into operation at this at the, in the pre-Saratoga part of the war, whereby um, we try to have um, General Burgoyne come down from Canada to Albany and, um, and then a force also come up from New York to Albany, splitting, taking the Hudson River essentially and splitting the New England part of the colonies off from the whole of the rest of the of the colonies, and that's that's the plan. And um, had uh, um, General Howe stuck to it rather than going off to capture Philadelphia, um, then it might have had a chance of success. Although some uh, military historians think that it had no chance of success whatsoever because it was too extravagant, and also because um, it required too much coordination of people who were too far away and with not enough um, good communications between them. But nonetheless, even given the idea that it might have worked, it certainly couldn't have worked once um, Howe has basically, uh, almost on his own, ripped up the plan and, uh, and left um, Burgoyne stranded far too far south at Saratoga and capable of being surrounded by the, um, by the American uh, militiamen and, uh, and captured. And from the moment he's captured, the, the central part of my... My, my thesis really is that from the moment that we lose uh, Saratoga and the French come into the war, it's over. Um, there were other plans. There were other successes. Charleston, of course, falling in 1780 was a great victory and so on. The British actually win more battles in the, in the American War of Independence than the Americans do. But that doesn't matter because ultimately the resources of the British Empire have to be spread out to the Mediterranean, to Gibraltar, to Ireland. India, of course, down into South, into Africa, but primarily to the West Indies, uh, because otherwise we lose the um, the Caribbean sugar islands. It's similar to a point one hears made about the Second World War. Victor Hansen just made it very aggressively in his his recent book about the war. That for all of the drama and all the tremendous suffering and, and bloodshed and and camp, the number of, of significant campaigns from 1942 on, in, in a way, the war is over or rather the war is decided from the moment that Germany declares war on the United States, that that puts the respective GDPs of global powers in such a place that, that the, the fate of the Axis is inevitable. I think possibly, though, you can go, um, you can take it um, a few days earlier than uh, the 12th of December 1941, when, um, when Hitler makes that, in this case, literally suicidal decision to get to war <laughs> against the United States. Uh, but actually, I think you can possibly go just a month earlier when the Germans are turned back from Moscow, hmm. because um, at that point, when uh, Germans move off to the right to uh, to take Kiev and uh, and the breadbasket in the Ukraine and fail to capture Moscow, um, then you get drawn into the battles like Stalingrad and Kursk 
that uh, that ultimately they lose. So I I, I do go ahead with uh, uh, agree with with ninety five percent of uh, of Victor, but then I always do agree with ninety five percent of Victor. He's a very great man. <laughs> uh, so let's let's bring it back to the eighteenth century. Uh, and before we get to George himself, one one last question about the overall strategic picture of the war. So in in the book, um, you know, as you're describing the, the British scheme for destroying the 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 Continental Army in the field. You describe the Americans, on the other hand, as having uh, recourse to a classic Fabian strategy. What's a Fabian strategy, and 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 how do the Americans go about executing it? It's uh, Maximus um, Fabius, isn't it, who refuses to fight a battle he's not going to win, which is an extremely sensible um, way of going about it. Kutuzov did uh, pretty much exactly the same thing. Obviously, um, you could argue that he did ultimately lose uh, Borodino. Uh, otherwise, he uh, he fell back, you know, and uh, and refused to fight battles that he was going to um, going to lose against Napoleon. Similarly, um, when Washington has a chance um, at, uh, at you know Delaware and uh, crossing the Delaware and and so on, um, he takes that chance. But he's not he's not caught in Manhattan in the way that uh, Howe would have had he been a bit less cautious. Uh, love to have actually um, captured the uh, Washington's army. So, um, so that, that that having failed, he falls back on this uh, on this Germanian plan that I was uh, mentioning earlier, which also fails again. And we are left really just hanging on to those parts of the eastern seaboard that we can hang on to uh, because of resupply by the Royal Navy. But what really was never expected um, by the Admiralty or by the King or by Lord Sandwich or by anybody else was that actually the, the French Navy or under uh, de Grasse is going to be able to um, defeat the Royal Navy off the coast of North America as well. And that, that just is an absolute disaster. You, you ultimately wind up, therefore, with, um, with Yorktown. Yeah. Uh, where, where Cornwallis shouldn't have been anyway, because he came far too far north, and that wasn't part of the plan either. And that was largely due to the Fabian operations of Nathaniel Green. So, you know, we're beaten strategically. We don't have enough men. We, at no point did they change the system of recruitment in Britain, a little bit in 1779, but far too late. The GDP that we're willing to um, spend on trying to win the American War of Independence is hardly higher than in pre-war periods. There's no central need, it seems, or demand or, or, or will to victory. There's no Churchill, there's no Pitt the Elder, there's no Francis Drake figure um, who's willing to, um, to really change Britain in order to try and keep the colonies. Let's get to George then. You're the author of a book called Leadership in War. You don't profile George III though he is, of course, a kind of leader in war. Talk about his attitude towards the war, his role in the British system towards waging it. Well, he was the first Prince of Wales for a very long time not to have seen any kind of, um, of conflict, I think 250 years. But he certainly did not see himself as being a leader in war in that he had to decide strategy. He very much left that up to generals, and generals, in fact, who could, um, who'd fought in America uh, in the in the French and Indian Wars, they were clearly going to be the right people to choose, but it turned out that um, that they weren't. His uh, his ministers also 
in particular Lord North, who, um, who didn't see himself as a leader so much as a sort of chairman of the board in the cabinet, also totally failed to, um, to rise to the occasion. So this was the problem, really. If he was a tyrant, if he had been a cruel, despotic and severe master, which is the dictionary, Samuel Johnson's dictionary definition of a tyrant, he might have actually um, done a bit better in America. But the fact that he was just a constitutional monarch who gave so much time to his uh, generals and his, and his admirals and his uh, ministers to try and deal with this issue, we came to complete disaster. Is it, is it too far to take out of what you're saying right now that the, the essential difference between Britain's performance in the Seven Years' War, where, of course, it's successful, and, and in some ways that success seems to breed a kind of complacency, and its failure with the American Revolution and, and with the, the broader war with France and Spain that, that, that results from it, is leadership. That and also what you mentioned earlier is, is this, um, this whole concept, which I think is absolutely central to, to this, just resting on your laurels. The country that lost the last time does an awful lot better. Look at France in, uh, in 1763, utterly crushed and, and defeated. By the time of Napoleon, it has completely changed its, um, its whole attitude to war. It's, it's, it's changed the, uh, the entire outlook. Um, and so even though actually the, the muskets they fight with and the cannons they fight with are much the same, the actual theories of war, the grand strategy, the overarching um, principles of how corps move and regiments move and so on, are so completely different because they have the spur of defeat. There's no, no better teacher than defeat. And, and there, there's this argument or, or, or disagreement about the raising of new regiments that occurs during ah, the early yes. years of the war. Absolutely. I mean, this is this again, this is goes back to, I'm afraid, to the British class system, which uh, whereby you have these regiments that um, obviously new regiments need to be formed or at least new companies of old regiments need to be formed in order to create enough um, enough trained men to uh, to get over the Atlantic and, and fight the Americans. However, the king does not want lots of, um, of aristocrats, basically, who are just paying for their um, commissions to be given control of, of troops, not because he didn't think they were competent or anything, but because he thought it would undermine the value of the commissions of the people who were over in America fighting the Americans anyhow. And so that the actual monetary value, but also the prestige value of a commission in a, uh, in a regiment would collapse if you just let anybody um, join the army. Of course, these aristocrats were not about to join as, as second lieutenants. They wanted to be you know, captains and majors and colonels. So this, this um, extraordinary system pertains all the way up, as I mentioned, until 1779, when finally he recognises that there's such a crisis now with the Americans and, and Spaniards uh, in the war that they have to just kick over the traces and, and accept uh, whatever offer they're, they're given. So you, you have this great line in the book to the effect of, you know, the Battle of Waterloo may have been won on the plain fields of Eton, but some 20 years earlier, it had been lost there as well, um, sort of making, making reference to the generally... 40, low, 40 years, 40 years. 40, 40 years, excuse me, 40 yes, years earlier. No, exactly, yeah. The generally dismal standard of leadership that we're discussing here. But, you, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a crisis generated... There's a recognition that on both the revenue front uh, and on the related manpower front, 
Uh, Britain is not up to waging this war successfully. Uh, and then it goes on, of course, to deal with Napoleon more effectively. What, what, talk about how the pendulum swings back. What, what, what does well, George learn from this experience? What did the British learn? As we, as we mentioned earlier, with the, um, you know, there's no greater um, teacher than defeat. Once we had been defeated in the American War of Independence, um, the lessons were learned. You have this, uh, this fantastic period where Frederick Duke of York becomes the uh, commander-in-chief of, of the British Army and stays there for, for many years and institutes huge reforms that, frankly, had he not been the son of the king, he probably wouldn't have been able to have um, pulled off um, against, the, uh, against the aristocracy and the army. Um, the purchase, although it's retained, is, um, is tempered uh, with merit uh, in the selection of officers. And we, uh, we undertake um, endless reforms that, uh, that make the army that goes to the peninsula under Wellington a completely different body than the one that was, um, that was surrendering at Yorktown. So, yes, we learn from our mistakes, but, um, but it, it has cost 13 colonies that later turn into the most powerful nation in the world. Indeed. <laughs> but it, it is interesting, you know, of, of course, the, the resolution of the revolution, the preservation of American independence, you know, it, it alters the global balance of power in a way that is, you know, epic, but it does take um, a century or more for the shift to really be apparent. Well, that's right. And, and that's because, you know, you've got an enormous uh, continent. Actually, that's another aspect of this book that I think might um, interest people is the, is the sort of conscious decision not to, not to do what a lot of tyrants might do and might have done in the final analysis in the American War of Independence, which was to um, uh, try to arm the uh, enslaved people of the black people of the South. I mean, 200 or so fought in the British army, but um, when one considers that there was a large British army in Charleston, that was a, a policy a possibility. And I know that although some Native Americans, indigenous peoples fought for British in the American War of Independence, it wasn't a major strategic uh, aspect. You know, it wasn't, we didn't turn the, um, the whole sort of racial composition of, um, of the 13 colonies on their heads in the way that a truly revolutionary or, or, or truly cruel, despotic and severe master um, might have done. To what extent were these sorts of options discussed and then then rejected? Oh, they were they were discussed all right. Yes, no, exactly. They um, but uh, but George the Third was not a social revolutionary by any means. He was a uh, I, I argue in this book he was a sort of closet Tory, or at least somebody who didn't mind having Tories in the uh, in the government. You know, he he didn't have a radical bone in his body. Really. Um, you, of course, make reference um, to, uh, to Hamilton, which it seems impossible to talk about George III without referencing the musical Hamilton. The other great pop culture depiction of him uh, in, in recent years is Alan Bennett's The Madness of King George, in which it's, it's, set, it's set after the War of Independence. And the character of George is portrayed as being disconsolate and, and uh, unsettled and, and, and wounded. Um, by the loss of his colonies in ways that are, are, you know, generally portrayed comically. What was what was the actual effect on George uh, of the outcome of the war? Well, actually, funny enough, he was he was rather, um, you know, these are unfair these um, uh, depictions. He was actually it was surprisingly phlegmatic about it. I mean, the, the great meeting 
with uh, John Adams, of course, when Adams is ambassador to Britain in June 1785. He says, I'll be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I've always said, and I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. And then a few years later, he says of George Washington that he's the greatest character of the age. I mean, these are, these are not things that somebody who's constantly irritated, frustrated and angry about what had happened would have said. He was able to, um, to pick himself up. And the, and the interesting thing also about Adam Bennett's uh, show, much as I enjoyed it, is that it got, it got the madness side completely wrong. Um, it went along in the 1960s with the 1960s concept that uh, George III had porphyria, which he did not. He, uh, he actually, um, as I think I prove um, without doubt in this book, um, had manic depression. He had bipolar disorder. And uh, I won't go into the rather disgusting details to do with his urine and feces that prove this. <laughs> People but, can watch the movie. Um, it's, it's vividly, yeah, yeah, vividly they portrayed. Do. Yeah, they go into it in the movie. And, and, and get it wrong there as well. So all in all, um, the, uh, the, the, the true story is a far more interesting and, um, and surprising one, frankly. In the spirit of your book, Leadership in War, give us, give us a kind of top level rating of George's performance in dealing with the, the American Revolution. What does he do well? What would he do differently as the king in his particular role? Well, this was the problem. His, his role had been changing. Uh, he didn't have powers that you would need to have if you were going to um, become a, um, a great national leader. He depended on the people who, unfortunately, uh, there were only two um, great statesmen of his 60-year reign. Um, one was Pitt the Elder, who was um, dead, and the other was, uh, was Pitt the Younger, who was too young. So he, he, he didn't have a, a great um, statesman or genius to um, to to lead his country, but in every other um, respect, he did as well as he possibly could. He tried to prevent the war from breaking out as much as he could. He um, what he what he recognised, and he recognised it far too late, was that it was going to require a massive national effort, and uh, and that was something really that the British were were not ready for in 1775, even though. You know, you'd had um, you'd had years since the Stamp Act and the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party and so on. You know, it, it didn't take a genius to work out that it was, you know, possibly going to um, going to end in in bloodshed. But what I try and argue in my book, and what I'd love to have just an opportunity to to point out, is that in my view, it's a tremendously pro-American book. This, because what it shows is that Americans are exceptional. There are any number of people in history who um, who revolt against uh, tyrannies, the Israelites against the, against the uh, Egyptians, the Dutch, of course, against the Spanish, the Greeks, against the Turks, you name it, Italians against the Austrians, it goes on and on. But what the Americans did actually was to demand at the correct stage in their historical development, the, um, their, their independence and sovereignty, even though they were not being tyrannized, even though they did not have, as Samuel Johnson put it, an absolute monarch governing imperiously. And I think that's what makes America um, an exceptional country and therefore even greater than it thinks it is. Andrew Roberts, thank you so much for joining. Much appreciated. Thank you, Aaron. I really enjoyed it. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.